what's going on here is we don't find a command to celebrate, nor do we find a command condemning celebration. But like everything else, you have to look at the spirit of the matter. You have to look at the motivation of the issue. You have to look up why we do what we do and to whose glory do we do it to? Because it was also appropriately read that everything that we do, we are to do it to the glory. Everything that we do, we are to do it to the glory of the Almighty and Messiah. That's part of the challenge. I knew when I brought this that there's so many people out there that are so hooked on celebrating birthdays that they would have an issue with this. And I'm not saying that comment is an issue, but the point is, is that if we focus on the things that Father is calling us to focus on, and we did that with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we look at the things that we desire to do that He may not have said anything, for or against, and we look at the motivation of our heart, then it's important for us to look at our motives and why we do what we do. Most people that I see doing these things have a motive of receiving something from someone and fall into a spirit if people don't. And that's the thing that we have to address. Where is that coming from? When we look at the spirit behind the things that we do and identify those spirits, you'll find that there are many things that we may find ourselves doing that is spiritually motivated, but not by the spirit of the Almighty. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. Birthdays are rarely celebrated in Scripture. There are two birthday celebrations recorded in Scripture. In this study, we will look at the events surrounding the only birthday celebration recorded in the New Testament. John the Baptist had been recognized by Yeshua as being the greatest prophet born of a woman. John had been sent by Yehovah as a voice crying in the wilderness declaring, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. John had declared to the king the king's violation of Yehovah's law that resulted in a desire for the death of the prophet. Join us in this twisted tale of dance, debauchery, and death in the message of birthday execution. So, let's study. So we're going to be talking about a birthday execution. Someone who's went on the uh, Facebook page where I posted today's teaching and wished me a happy birthday. Now, today is certainly not my birthday. As a matter of fact, I've tried to remove any indication of my date of birth from social media. Some people who have memories, as they say, like elephants, still remember. But it is my goal to really remove those kinds of things off of the Internet because people wishing me a happy birthday, I sometimes don't know how to respond. I'm thankful and happy that they're thinking of me and, and want to celebrate. But it's a lot easier for me if I don't have to deal with that 
kind of thing and all the reasons behind it. I'm not looking to try to get into that today, although I know that some of it might come up. We're looking at Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to be dealing with a situation in the Bible where a birthday is celebrated. Now, as I sent out the information on this message today, I wrote that birthdays are rarely celebrated in Scripture, and there are two birthday celebrations that are recorded in Scripture, and as we're going to see today, they both turn out to be something that should not be on a birthday, if you would, because most people celebrate birthdays as a happy occasion. Rarely do it turn into tragedy, and that's the case that we find here in Scripture. In this study, we're going to look at the events surrounding the only birthday celebration recorded in the New Testament. And John the Baptist, as Yeshua had identified him, was the greatest prophet born of a woman. In our studies of Scripture, we've identified how the Israelites or the Hebrew people or the Jews were prone to kill the prophets. And this is going to be one of those situations to where a prophet is confronting a particular situation and it creates an issue for those that he confronts. John had been sent by Jehovah as the voice crying in the wilderness, declaring, prepare ye the way of Jehovah. And John had declared to the king, the king's violation of Jehovah's law that resulted in a desire for the death of the prophet. And so we're going to take a look at this. I call it a tale of dance and debauchery and death. Now, some of the things that I'm going to share with you, I've touched on before, but for historical purposes and for educational purposes, it's important for us to understand uh, certain aspects of scripture that scripture doesn't seem to give us understanding unless we seek or search a matter out. From the beginning of Matthew to the end of the book of Acts, there are actually seven Herods mentioned in the Bible. Seven. Now, I talked before about four, but deeper research shows me that I missed three. (laughs) And it's easy to miss because if you're not looking for it, Herod is a Herod is a Herod. Just like there are several Johns in the Bible, and depending on where your mind is, you can apply the wrong John to the passage. And so we're going to look at some of that. The first, Herod is Herod the Great. And what I've done in the parentheses is I've put whether they're king or a tetrarchy, or um, which is a governor, as it's related to their name and the time of their reign. In Matthew chapter 2, when Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So Herod was a king this particular passage, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, 
The interesting thing about this Herod is he had 10 wives and nine sons and five daughters. Now, three of his sons he killed. Herod the Great destroyed the entire royal family of Hasmoneans, and this is the Maccabees family lineage. For those of you who've read the Maccabees, um, you, you know about the Maccabees, and they were considered the Hasmonean dynasty. Now, Herod married one of the descendants of the Maccabees, this particular Herod, Herod the Great. He put to death many Jews that opposed his government and proceeded to kill even his dearly beloved wife, Mariani of the Hasmonean line, and his two sons that she had brought forth for him. He also killed his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and many others. And of course, we know him as the one who killed all the babies during the time of the birth of Yeshua. Then there's Herod Archelaus, and he was tetrarch or governor, but Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, but when he heard, and those of you who remember that Yeshua, parents, Joseph was warned in a dream, and they fled. He left went to Egypt. However, when father spoke to him while he was there, he told him that the one who sought his son's life was dead. In Matthew 2, it says, but when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea, now Archelaus is one of Herod's sons. In room of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And then there's Herod Antipas and Herod Philip II. Now, Herod Philip I, we're going to talk about early, a little bit later, but in Luke chapter 3, it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod, this one Antipas, being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ithraea, and of the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene. And so what happened is that when Herod died, there's this operation among the Romans to establish uh, Herod's lineage, some of his people, because of the relationship that had been established, appointed them over particular regions in the land of Israel. And so you'll see that they didn't reign over the entire country, but over portions of it, and not as kings, but as governors. Then there's Herod Agrippa. This is the Herod in chapter 12, on the appointed day, Herod wearing his royal robes, and this is the Herod that killed the prophet, I mean the apostles in chapter 12. And later on in that chapter, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of God, not of man. Immediately, verse 23 
because Herod did not give praise to Elohim, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Then there's the sixth Herod, and this is the Herod who Paul was brought before. He's Herod Agrippa II, and the, the one we just mentioned was Herod Agrippa I. So right now we're at six Herods, all mentioned in the Bible. How many of you knew that there were this many Herods in the Bible? <laughs> I'd mentioned four as rulers, but there were actually six and then another one, which we're going to point out here in a moment. And so in Acts 25, 24, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, you see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought no longer to live or not to live any longer. And so that Herod was Agrippa. Now, there's Herod Philip I. He was neither a tetriarch or a king. He was the brother of Herod Antipas, and he was the first husband of Herodias, and this is the one that John confronts because he has married his brother's wife. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the tetrarch heard of the fame of Yeshua, and as I mentioned, a tetrarch is a governor of the fourth part of a region because Israel was divided and tetrarchs or tetrarchies were put over certain regions as governor. Now, Herod the Great ran the whole thing, <laughs> but Herod had some issues, as you've seen, and this lineage is a very vicious and cruel people and didn't hesitate to kill. But that's the way kings had a tendency to be. If you've read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and you saw how there were good kings and there were evil kings, the evil kings far outweighed or outnumbered the good kings. This Herod, surnamed Antipas, was the son of Herod the Great and Malthase, a Samaritan woman, after the death of his father, he was appointed by the Romans, Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. His first wife was the daughter of Aretas, king of Arabia, but he subsequently repudiated her and took to himself Herodias, the wife of his brother Herod Philip. And in consequence, Aretas, his father-in-law, made war against him and conquered him. And I'm pulling this from the antiquities of Josephus. Now, Josephus was a historian, and he gave or he wrote about things that were occurring in the life of these individuals. And so this stuff you won't find in the Bible, but it's good to have a Bible dictionary. It's good to look up words, and it's good to look at the history and the region or geography, which is why we provide uh, in our bookstore, maps. So when you want to look up the geography and within those book of maps, you'll find a lot of historical information. If you have any of Josephus's antiquities, you can read, of course, it's some heady reading, but the history is available 
And it certainly brings life to some of these, because if you just read in the Bible about Herod and you look at some of these names, it would be sometimes difficult to make those connections with these particular individuals and their families. In verse 2 it says, And so he said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. Now let's go back to verse 1. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Yeshua. But then in verse 2 it says, And said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. So what do we see here? We see a belief system of individuals reincarnated or resurrected, if you would. Because in this particular case, Herod had already killed John the Baptist He's hearing about what Yeshua is doing and said, this man, because some people were saying he's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. This particular Herod, like many in his family, were superstitious people. Now, the other thing about Herod is Herod and his lineage were Edomites, if you would. They were Adumeans and the Edomites or the descendants of Esau dwelt in that region. These were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And what you see when you start connecting these dots is throughout the Bible, throughout the Chronicles, throughout the Kings, you'll see that there is unforgiveness bitterness and hostility between Esau's descendants and Jacob, Israel's descendants, which goes all the way back to the point when Jacob, when he was Jacob, deceived his father at the bequest of his mother. Jacob did not want to do what his mother inquired of him. Jacob, as a result, has been coined a deceiver when, in fact, he was not. He said to his mother, my father knows the difference between me and Esau. Surely he's going to know I'm not Esau, and he's going to curse me. The mother said, let whatever happen be upon me. And so now here he is going in to deceive his father, not of his own accord, but because of following and obeying the instructions of his mother. So there's this hostility that has worked its way down through history all the way now to where Herod has somehow gained control of the throne of Israel. Now, according to Scripture, David's descendants were supposed to rule over the throne. Herod was a Hebrew, but he was not an Israelite. Remember, we've talked about how all biblical Israelites are Hebrews, but all Hebrews, all biblical Hebrews are not Israelites. 
And as we dealt with the manner of Hebrew slaves in our Exodus teaching, we identified who the Hebrews were going all the way back to Ibri, which we find Abraham was a descendant of, and, you know, Ibri, Eber, and Abraham was the first person called a Hebrew. We identified that Abraham's first son, Ishmael, was a Hebrew. Now, I know today people have given him Islamic status, but the fact of it is is that Abraham the Hebrew was the father of Ishmael, and he taught Ishmael the instructions, the laws. He taught him everything that the Almighty had taught Abraham. And then we find that Abraham, after the birth of Ishmael, had Isaac. And so Isaac was a Hebrew, but Isaac wasn't an Israelite. Ishmael was not an Israelite. Abraham was not an Israelite. Isaac was not an Israelite. In fact, Jacob was not an Israelite (laughs) until father changed his name to Israel. So Jacob became the first Israelite. But after Sarah died in Genesis chapter 25, we see that Abraham married another woman. Her name was Keturah. And she bore him six sons. And one of those sons were the descendants of Midian, whom Moses married his daughter. And so Moses actually married a Hebrew woman. She wasn't an Israelite. Moses was. Are you with me so far? And so now, here it is. You've got an Edomite on the throne of Israel, which rightfully if things had followed according to scripture, he never would have been a king. This is the work of Rome. In chapter 14, we see that it opens with the narrative that John has already been beheaded. Now, we don't get to the beheading until later verses, but the fact is is that when Herod Antipas says, wait a minute, what I'm hearing about Yeshua is John resurrected, which tells us that in chapter 14, verse 1, John is already dead. You really need to pay attention to this. (laughs) He's already dead, but we don't get the explanation of his death until later on in the chapter. And so, according to Luke 9, John was beheaded between the time Yeshua called the 12 disciples and sent them out and before they returned. And if we look at that, Luke 9, 6, and they departed, the disciples, he had called them, given them instructions, and they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, And he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead. So here's the the picture. Yeshua calls his disciples. His disciples go out. He gives them authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. The word gets back to Herod that this Yeshua has now instructed his disciples 
And not only is Yeshua doing miracles, but now he's got these disciples who are doing miracles, and he has now multiplied. <laughs> you see, this was the mystery when we begin to deal with the mysteries as it relates to Yeshua teaching in parables, mysteries that were hidden, and the great mystery was that Yeshua now would replicate himself. He would become many, not just one. In the past, the enemy, if he could just kill the prophet, he stopped the voice. If he could destroy the leader, the sheep would scatter and nothing would become of it. But Father's mystery was that he's going to replicate himself. See, he's already got this in mind, that he's going to, in a certain time, pour out his spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. So it wouldn't be just him sending prophets, but he's going to establish a plan that the devil would not be able to destroy. We're part of that plan, folks. <laughs> you and I are a part of the Almighty's master plan before the foundation of the earth. And I know this is hard sometimes for us to comprehend because how you see yourself is how you are reflected in the mirror of society unless you decide to see yourself through the eyes of the creator. Until you get to a point to where you see yourself through the eyes of the creator, you will always undermine who you are. You will always undervalue who you are. You will never see yourself as the person that you have been authorized and created to be, nor will you operate in the authority and power you have been given as the son of the most high. Think about that for a moment. Yeshua is the only begotten, but then, or he was, <laughs> but now we are begotten too. That's the whole born again process. He was born perfect. We've been born again into perfection. And I'm not talking about some worldly perfection to where everything you do and say is right. I'm talking about the fact that the Almighty has already perfected you as his son and daughters, and all we have to do is get our minds renewed so that we can walk in the perfection that he has already ordained. The only thing that's holding us back is how we see ourselves and the reflection that the world around us project on us. This is what causes us to procrastinate. This is what causes us to not walk in the authority or the power because we're more concerned about what people think than what he thinks. Now, we won't say it because we'll say that we're more concerned about what the Almighty thinks than anybody, but our life does not reflect it. Until our life begins to reflect the authority, the power, the greatness of who you are, you will always 
limit yourself to what you see, to your education, to your family line, to what people say, to what other people think, when what really matters is what does he think and what has he said. That's a very difficult place to get in, and the only way you'll ever get there is a renewed mind. The world is constantly trying to make us like it. We're supposed to be becoming like him and then communicating this, the gospel of the kingdom, to the world around us. But we got challenges. And the biggest challenge we have is rejection. Rejection is designed to destroy the born-again, spirit-filled man-woman. Why? Because when you feel rejected, you take steps back. You don't move forward. You take steps back. Rejection is like a dagger. It's like a spear. It's like being shot through with an arrow. Because when you feel rejected, what do you do? You go into a woe is me, poe is me, pity me, because the world around you has rejected you and you want to be accepted. Yeshua demonstrated what this would be like. He says, listen, brothers and sisters. <laughs> he didn't say brothers and sisters, but he, in essence, he's talking to his disciples. And... He's saying to them, I'm a green tree. Look at how the world treats me. I'm a green tree. You see how they're treating me? And I haven't done anything wrong. Yeshua didn't commit any crimes. He, he wasn't a sinner. He was a righteous man, a holy man. And the world treated him with disdain, treated him as a criminal, treated him as a wicked man. And he died he died an evil, cruel death, but it was all by design to trick the enemy <laughs> because the devil thought he had won. But that third day when he rose from the dead, it's like, man, you know, the, he wasn't expecting that. And he didn't go and confront the devil when he rose from the dead. He showed himself to his disciples empowered them, brought them back into the fold because they had scattered, told them to go and wait for the empowerment of the Spirit. And once the empowerment of the Spirit occurred, he says, you will be my witnesses. You'll receive power. And that power, brothers and sisters, is to be the witness, to be the martyrs, to be the ones who are willing to do exactly what Yeshua did, lay his life down for the gospel of the kingdom. Rejection has a way of causing us to pause, to feel bad, to feel sorry, especially when you're rejected by the people that you have such great admiration and respect for, rejected by parents, rejected by siblings, rejected by friends, rejected by coworkers. When he heard about these things, verse 7, Luke 9, when he heard of all that was done by him, by who? Yeshua, how? 
through his disciples. He was perplexed. It's like, wait a minute. I thought we put an end to that John the Baptist, and this Yeshua must be him resurrected or one of the other prophets or something else. Verse 8, it says, and some that Elias had appeared. So they said, is John resurrected? The people are confused. They don't know. They don't understand. Elias has appeared, and of others, that one of the old prophets was risen again. So you got these three stories, and of course, you know, everybody was expecting Elias. Everybody was expecting this prophet, the Mashiach. They knew Elijah was supposed to be the forerunner, but Yeshua said, John, if you can accept it, is that Elijah? So all of this is coming together. He says, and Herod said, John, have I beheaded? But who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. And the apostles, when they were returned, now notice here. So this happened before the apostles returned. He sent them out. And it says in verse 10, and the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. Now, you'll miss this if you just read Luke because you won't see, but what is happening in, in chapter 14 is John has been beheaded. The apostles are out. Before they return, now Yeshua goes into a desert place. And the apostles, when they returned, told him all that they had done, and he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Now, this chronology would place John's beheading around Matthew chapter 11, and it appears Yeshua eulogized him. Now, you didn't pick this up, but when we did the teaching on Matthew 11, 1 through 19, the prophets and the law, I stated in slide 32, so if you go back and look at it, <laughs> I alluded to John's eulogy back in chapter 11. I wanted to go in a little deeper, but it would have taken the focus off of that particular teaching because now I would have had to jump ahead and explain to you that in chapter 11 of John, of Matthew, John had been beheaded. Yeshua begins to speak to the people after his disciples. Remember, John in prison sends his disciples saying, are you the one or should we look for another? And he told John, tell John, this is what you see, the dead being raised, the, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And when they departed, Yeshua began to say to the people, when you went out to the river, when you went out to Jordan, when you went out to see John, what did you go out to see? And he goes into this dialogue where he's talking about John in a way to where it appears that this is the kind of language you would be speaking over someone who is no longer with us or was in the process of being. And here's why you have to literally make these connections because as I stated earlier, the Bible is not in chronology. It's written after the fact. The events happen and sometime later, it's written, captured in writing and then presented to us in the Bible, 
And because we read chronologically, it's so easy for us to not be able to make these connections in the order in which they actually happens. So you got Matthew's version, you got Mark's version, you got Luke's version, you got John's version, and they're all saying similar things, but not in the same order. And you have to make the connections. This is what searching the scriptures is about. Verse 3, Matthew 14. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison. Now this is in chapter 14. For Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Now verse 3 occurred in chapter 4. If we go back to chapter 4, you see, now when Yeshua had heard that John was cast into prison, So in chapter 4, he's cast into prison. In chapter 11, we see it seems Yeshua's eulogizing him. And in chapter 14, it looks as if he's just being killed. This is one of the advantages, huge advantage of doing verse-by-verse studies. Otherwise, We're taught a sermon here, a sermon there, a sermon there, and we remember sermons. But when it comes down to searching the scriptures, because there is where the life is, and searching the scriptures and having an understanding, this is applying wisdom, applying knowledge, and getting understanding from the wisdom and knowledge that the scripture is giving to us. When we have that understanding, brothers and sisters, When we're in conversation with other people, you will see based on the information, the knowledge and understanding you have that when you're talking to other people about the Bible, most of them don't know what they're talking about. Because what are they doing? They're telling you sermons. Their belief systems have been established just like many of us. Our belief systems were established based on sermons. And because of our belief systems established based on sermons, We were operating as believers in idolatry, not intentional. When we were worshiping on Sunday, we didn't know we were in idolatry. You couldn't tell us that we were operating in idolatry, talking about Sunday worship. We weren't worshiping the sun. We were just worshiping on the day of the sun. Why are we worshiping on the day of the sun? Is that the Sabbath day? Well, according to the preachers, they told us it was our Sabbath. But where in the Bible do we find two separate Sabbaths, one for one group of people and another for another group of people? We ain't Jews. That was for the Jews, the Christian Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. That's the Sunday. We're free. And by the way, every day is a Sabbath. We were confused, confound, bewildered. Can I just put it like it is? We were ignorant. With all the knowledge we had, we were ignorant brethren. Just flat out ignorant. And you couldn't tell us we were ignorant because we were holy, especially the sanctified saints, you know, the Holy Ghost filled saints. You, You can't tell them in idolatry, Christmas trees, Easter bunnies. And we did it all. At least 
many of us in this room, maybe not all of us, but hey. And in our heart, we knew the stuff we were doing, we couldn't find it in the Bible, but what difference does it make? We were worshiping Jesus. <laughs> yeah, we had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. We didn't have the knowledge, and the Bible says, get wisdom, get knowledge. We had the knowledge of religion and were puffed up in it. And you couldn't tell us nothing. It took an act of the most high to come in and say, hey, you know what? That ain't the way. I know you want to do it right, so let me show you. And now you, you got your eyes open and all the people whose eyes refuse to see, it's not that they can't see. It's not that people can't see. They just don't have eyes to see. Their hearts are not open. That's basically what it is. When a person becomes stiff-necked, hard-hearted, they're not open to see what's clearly in front of them and hold on to things and make excuses for things that they do that you can't find in the book. I mean, that's the ultimate of deception when you're celebrating and worshiping stuff that is not clearly identified in the book while rejecting the stuff that is clearly identified. How can you be celebrating Christmas and Easter? There is absolutely no means by which those celebrations are supposed to be taking place Worshiping on Sunday, when the Bible is clear, they kept the Sabbath. Father says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Catholics give us another Sabbath day and kept that holy. See, the church Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, is not the Sabbath of the book. And yet people reject the Sabbath of the book to hold on to a Christian Catholic church Sabbath. You follow what I'm saying? I'm going to tell you something. This is convicting to think as smart as I was, as knowledgeable as I was, as serious about my walk, my faith, reading the Bible every day, going to church Every Sunday, every time the doors open, praying, started speaking in tongues, the whole nine yards, only to come to find is that my zeal was not according to knowledge. And Father's like, I see you, I got you in the fullness of time. You just keep going, keep moving, keep growing. Then I'm going to flip the script. When I think about Paul in the book of Acts, how he had all of this knowledge and all of this information as far as Judaism is concerned. He had learned, sat at the feet of, you know, the most learned individuals who taught Torah and the law and the prophets. And he had a lot of right information but the way it was taught to him was the wrong applications. See, you can have the information, but apply the information in the wrong way. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, that great deception 
that was on me enable us, it should enable all of us to have compassion for those people who are still caught up in it. For a long time, I would not go after the church. I wouldn't say negative stuff about it, but it's, it's at a point now to where people need to be shocked into reality. Now, when Yeshua had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders. So we see John was thrown in prison way back in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 11, we see that again, Yeshua is speaking concerning him, and in Matthew 14, we're about to see what actually happened. For John said unto him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Have who? His brother's wife. And when he would have put him to death. Now I want you to see what's going on with Herod the Tetra or Antipas. Says when he would have put him to death, what did he, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. He was afraid to kill him. People sometimes do and say foolish things on their birthday. Because on the birthday, everything is about you. People throw their own birthday party. They want you to know it's their birthday. Why? So you will celebrate them. That's the whole goal, is for you to celebrate them. Are you not worthy of celebration? On the birthdays, it's demanded. Whether you're worthy of celebrating or not, it's demanded on the birthday. It's my birthday. What you going to do for my birthday? What you going to get me for my birthday? And it don't matter what day it is. Your birthday can fall on the Sabbath. It's my birthday. Your birthday can fall on Yom Kippur. It's my birthday. Your, your birthday can fall on Passover. It's my birthday. It doesn't matter what day it falls on because you become the focal point, the center of attention. Do you know that this stuff was taught to you? When you came into the world, you didn't know nothing about no birthdays. And you certainly didn't learn it in the Bible. So how does it become such a big issue for people today? It doesn't come from the Bible. It doesn't come from the Almighty. So what? In this case, Herod committed himself to something that forced him to overcome his fear of the multitude who counted John as a prophet. Verse 6, but when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. The argument of most anti-abortionists is that life begins when? At conception. So the question is, does life begin the day you are born? Or does life begin at conception? <laughs> you say, where you going with that, bro? Just follow since life begins at conception, if carried full term, the day one actually enters into this world, they're already nine months old. Therefore, on the first birthday, as the parents celebrate them being one year old, technically it is inaccurate. They are actually three months shy of being two years old. Just something to think about. Because people make arguments that when you drill down to its core, it's not solid. The born-again process is an ongoing process in our lives. As I mentioned on Thursday, I posted 
you know, why do people celebrate the day they were born in sin and not celebrate the day they were born again? For many people, it's as difficult to remember when you became born again or you made that initial invitation into your life just as it is to difficult to identify the day you were conceived. The day you were conceived, your life began. If you follow the belief that life begins at conception. So if we follow that, then we would celebrate our first year of life three months after we're born. Not the day we're born. You see how the math doesn't add up? The daughter of Herodias was Herod's niece. So here it is, this grown man who's married to his brother's wife is watching his brother's daughter dance provocatively before his guests on his birthday. Now, according to Josephus, her name was Salome. She later married her granduncle, the other Philip, son of Herod the Great, who ruled the northern territories. At this time, Josephus writes, Salome was a young woman of marriageable age. Her dance was unquestionably lascivious, and the performance pleased both Herod and his guests. Herod was inspired to give her up to half his kingdom, not knowing her request would cause him to execute a righteous, holy man. When you go to Mark chapter 6, we see that Herod not only feared doing something to John because of what the people considered, but Herod himself feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy and observed him, and when he heard him, he did many things and held and heard him gladly. So it's like this. Herod knew he was wrong for what he did. When John came and confronted him, he didn't argue with John because he knew John was telling the truth. But if he takes the mindset, I'm the king, I'm above the law. The law doesn't apply to me. But not only that, he was not an Israelite. He was not a Jew. So he could take the argument like many Christians, I'm not Jewish, so that don't apply to me. But Herod is being confronted by the prophet of the Most High, says whether you Jew or not, whether you Israelite or not, you Hebrew. And the law was given to the Hebrews because when Moses goes up, the first instruction Father begins to deal with him about is Hebrews. He goes all the way back to Abraham. Remember when we looked at the Hebrew slaves, who sold Hebrew? It was a Hebrew who sold Hebrew. The Ishmaelites, the Midianites, Hebrews, who sold Joseph, a Hebrew, to Potiphar, an Egyptian. So here you have John speaking to Herod, saying, listen, what you're doing is wrong. You're not supposed to have your brother's wife. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, 
high captains and chief estates of Galilee. So who's celebrating his birthday? He is establishing this big grand occasion to celebrate himself. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, ask of me whatever you will and I will give it thee. And he swore unto her, whatsoever you shall ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. Now, I have to wonder because the way this is presented, he says this after she danced. Why would he offer her anything after the dance? He's got what he wanted. I suspect that he said to, this to her to get her to dance. Just a thought. Just a thought. But if you've done something for me, you know, then it's done, right? Just my way of thinking. Of course, the way it's written, he swore unto her, whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. What kind of request is that? But see, this is the kind of stuff that goes on in the heart of individuals who have been confronted with information they don't want to hear, they don't want to deal with, because they know that they're in violation of what they're being confronted with to begin with. So what do you want to do? Silence them. People think that by silencing the truth, they're not responsible for it. By silencing the truth, they're not responsible for it. And the king was exceeding sorrow. Now hold it. It's a celebration. <laughs> this celebration just turned ugly real quick, didn't it? Yet for his oath's sake, he put his word out there. Now you're going to look foolish. Oh, the king, he don't live up to his word. He say one thing, but then he do something else. And this is in the sight of his guests. Yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him. Now, you're dealing with a man who has a fear of this man because of the people and who also fears him because he knows that he's a righteous man and a holy man and he knows that the stuff that he's saying to him is true. Sometimes people get angry at you for speaking the truth to them and they want you out. They will cut you off. They will shut you off. They will shut you out. They will avoid you. They will try to tear you down. They will say things to you to try to back you up. They will try to make you feel bad. They will reject you. And because of rejection, people have a tendency to go inward. What the Almighty reveals to us in secret, he says, blasted from the rooftop. But after a little rejection, you ain't blasted no more. You're not shouting no more. You're not telling people about Yeshua as much as you probably used to. Because what? You don't want to deal with that rejection. Rejection hurts. 
It's not pleasant. So what do you try to do? You try to appease people, tiptoe around them, all that kind of stuff. Listen, if the world want to live its sinful behavior out loud, how much the more should we be living our faith out loud? That's why I, I believe that this is one of the things that caused Paul to write in Romans, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know the power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Yeshua HaMashiach for in there, therein, is the righteousness of Yehovah unto all who will believe. And the world wants to shut you up. And then people become ashamed of the gospel. Quoting, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Really? See, we deceive ourselves if we're not careful. We'll make our mouths say things our heart don't believe. And if you really want to know what you believe, watch your actions. Watch your actions. Look at what you do. Monitor yourself. How much of you do you spend proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel, the truth? Or do we kind of ignore stuff? Well, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to create an offense. Well, you know, the gospel to some is an offense. The key, brothers and sisters, is becoming wise. It's becoming one who has a vast vocabulary. Well, if your vocabulary is limited, expand it. Get your dictionary. I'm going to tell you right now, there's not seemingly a day that goes by that I don't pull out the dictionary. Because these people be saying stuff on TV and using words I don't understand. And then I'm reading articles and it's like, you know, what's that word? Well, let me go to the dictionary. Because they be using these, as they say, where I come from, these highfalutin words. <laughs> you know? And I'm not going to sit there and nod my head like I understand and I don't. I'll pull out a dictionary in a minute because I want to know what you're saying. And so if your vocabulary is limited, expand it. How do you expand your vocabulary? Read. Read the Bible. You see something you don't understand? Go to the dictionary, not Webster, the Bible dictionary. Go to the concordance. And what did you do? You just learned the definition of a word. You didn't know the definition before. As a matter of fact, you really couldn't even pronounce the word before. And I'm sitting up in churches listening to these preachers you know, and I know I'm not the perfect pronouncer of Hebrew and Greek, Lee. <laughs> I know you can. But I got a tool now on my phone. I, I hear a word and I got to go to, not like this tetriarchy. I didn't have tetriarch and I'm still using tetriarch, but that's not the right pronunciation. That's what I'm accustomed to. But the word in the Greek sounds so much Greeky, anyway, learn, expand your vocabulary because with your vocabulary, you're able to communicate in ways where you don't have to try to force something. You can speak to a person in a manner because your vocabulary is vast to where now you got them going home looking up stuff. Yeah. So now, 
they bring his head in on a meat platter. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask, and she being before instructed of her mother, you see this? And she being before, before what? After she danced? Maybe before, because I can imagine when the king, I mean, you got to think about this. Unless she's just somebody who don't care, the king is asking her to dance at his party in front of all these people. Now, she's got a treacherous mother. Her mother is treacherous, and you know mothers and daughters. She's watching her mother deal with this king. She knows. Her daddy, she probably don't like the man because it ain't her daddy in the first place. You know how some of these stepdaughters are? And this is his niece. It's like, you know, I can imagine she's looking at this man. This is some perverted dude. Here I am, his niece. I'm his brother's daughter. He's got my mother that he done took from my daddy. And now he wants me to dance in front of all these strangers. Mama, what should I do? Because he done told me if I dance, he's going to give me up to half of his kingdom. Oh, daughter, dance. And we want John's head. Anyway, and she being before instructed of her mother said, give me here John the Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and then was set with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. Now, Matthew refers to Herod as a king in this verse, verse 9. You see that? But he's a tetriarch. However, a tetriarch. <laughs> However, he's uh, referred to as a king by the people because he rules over the territory. The word here, sorry, is to make sorrowful, to affect with sadness, to cause grief, to throw into sorrow. The last thing you want to be feeling on your birthday is what? Sorry. See, when you start adding all this stuff up, now all of a sudden, a joyous occasion. And imagine being a guest at this birthday party where somebody's head is brought in on a platter. Especially after you just ate. You see what I'm saying? Especially after you have eaten. I can imagine the weak stomach. But you got to put yourself in that place. Reading it, it doesn't do justice. But when you put yourself in that room with all this that's going on and you begin to, to visualize what's happening during this time, it should enrage. It's like, what's wrong with this man? But he's a wicked man. He's already demonstrated his wickedness. You sure know what he's dealing with. He's dealing with these wicked men. He's dealing with the Pharisees. He's dealing with the Sadducees, which he calls evil, wicked, perverted. And I'm going to tell you something in religious circles. You have individuals who have authority and power over people, and they exercise that authority and power over people and can abuse that authority and power over people, especially when it comes to women and elders, elderly, the elderly. Some of the people that are most taken advantage of is the women in the ministry and the senior citizens in the ministry. 
because you got individuals for whatever reason operating in their ministry for the purpose of padding their pockets. They're not concerned about your descendants and who you leave your inheritance to. It takes a lot for an individual in authority to understand the boundaries that that authority gives them. I remember one lady came to me and wanted some advice on her estate. I'm not an estate planner. I don't do estate planning. So what's the right thing to do? You need to find somebody who do estate planning. And I can tell you, you know, in my mind, because see, if you monitor yourself, if you really think about it, man, she wants me to give her advice on her estate. See how we can get her to leave a legacy to our ministry. You can just donate all your money to the ministry. You know this stuff happens. It happens all the time. I've read lawsuits against churches, pastors, from the children of their parents who have left all of their resources. If it's the heart of the individual to do that, it shouldn't be coaxing from the leaders of the ministry. You have to always search your motives. This is why I'm very, very careful and sensitive about trying to create schemes and give up, you know, develop reasons to separate you from your shekels. If you give to the ministry, wonderful. If you don't give to the ministry, that's between you and the Almighty. But we can create some, we can create some, uh, <laughs> some giving opportunities. Are you with me? We can create some opportunities now for those who just want to be separated from their resources. It's easy to do. In fact, it's hard not to do it. The heart is deceitful, brothers and sisters. It's desperately wicked. You got to constantly be looking at your motives. You got to constantly be looking at what is motivating you to do what you do, to say what you say, and are you even trying to set people up? Because you got people that are sly and slick. We called it in the church Holy Ghost begging. They know how to put a need out there in front of you. They know how to let you know that they are struggling. Now, they ain't going to ask you, but they want you to know. Why? If you want something, brother, ask. You have not because you don't ask. Well, if you ask, that means that now you can, you're in a position to be questioned. Why are you in need? What's your budget? How are you handling your money? Are you properly managing your money? Do you tithe? People don't want you to ask them kind of questions. They just want you to do the Christian thing. You know I got a need. I presented the need to you. I ain't asking you for nothing. See? It's some slick stuff going on out there, brothers and sisters. On a day of celebration, Herod is sorrowful. A birthday celebration turns into an execution of a righteous and holy man, the great prophet John the Baptist. Verse 10. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel. And what did she do? She brought it to her mother. Now, I tried to put myself in that position, and I would suspect that if the king is having a birthday party, then his wife would be present. 
our tomb. But the verse indicates that maybe she wasn't. Because what did she do? He gave her the head and she took it to her mother. Now imagine the king thinking if the mother is sitting right there and the daughter gives the head to the mother. He know that he'd been played because the, the mother wanted John dead long before the birthday, but Herod wouldn't kill him. And now he'd been played. And think about this, because Herod is thinking, you had the opportunity to have up to half of my kingdom. What kind of spiteful, vindictive behavior is this? Well, you knew what you was getting, brother, when you took somebody else's wife. You thought that you was the one playing. Player. Player been played. A lot of players get played because they go after something that is not the Almighty's intent. And once they get what they got, they wish they never had pursued it. Then they come up with all kinds of excuses as to, well, you know, that wasn't God's will. That wasn't, well, did, you didn't know that before? I'm going to tell you something. People do things for motives, and this is why, brothers and sisters, you got to make sure, if you're not sure that you're doing what Father wants you to do, don't do nothing. Just wait, because he will reveal it to you. He will make himself known to you if you sincerely want to know. And his disciples came. Now, this, is, this part really... I don't know how to take this, this last verse. It says, and his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. Now, I don't know what the mother did with the head, but I suspect that she didn't reconcile the head to the body. So when the disciples came and took up the body, I imagine them taking the body with no head and buried it. Now, maybe she, she sent the head with the body, but, you know, if you've watched some of the movies that I watch, they don't, put the, they don't reconnect the heads back to the body once the head has been taken. It's usually on a stake or something. It's usually set up for all to see. This is what happens if you defy me. It doesn't say that this is what happened, but it does say that his disciples came and took the body. So you got the body that's been beheaded in the prison and the head with Herodias. Hmm. This is a birthday execution. Now, I wasn't really trying to focus on birthdays as much as trying to get you to celebrate or not celebrate a birthday, but I think scripturally things become very obvious as to what Father is giving us to celebrate. The Bible doesn't forbid birthday celebrations, but it certainly don't endorse it. It's so much about the person, if you would, and the motivation, because everything you do, you have to look at what's motivating you to do it. Why do you have a need to celebrate a birthday? What's behind it? Is it so you can get stuff? Is it so you can be the king or the queen of the day? Is it so that other people will celebrate you? Other people will pay homage? To you, look at the attitude when you have a, a birthday celebration and certain people don't show up. Certain people don't acknowledge or recognize. Or somebody give you some stinky gift you don't want. When you look at all the things that is associated with it, brothers and sisters, 
it's hard to find the Almighty in it. You would be hard pressed to find the Almighty in it, especially when someone wants to do their birthday on his holy day. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.